0: You enjoyed your spring break. Obviously, a few more than here. We're glad you're here today. Um, before we begin, let me uh, let me take just a moment to share something with you. Okay? About a year or so ago, we decided to uh, begin do some upgrading on our facility. We uh, did some painting, and we did some other things, changed the stage up a little bit. And um, I wanted to take a moment, because while we're not totally through, the last few weeks have been some major, major uh, improvements. And I I wanted you to know that when we started this, the the decision we made was that we would not borrow one penny to do it. That, uh, that from the gifts of the people, uh, we would do what we could. We would uh, bite it off in chunks that we could swallow. And so all through the last year, year and a half, we've done that. And we've paid cash for it all. And I want to commend you guys for your giving. Uh, that's helped us to do it and not have to borrow one penny. And I want to take a moment to let Bubba, Larry, Daniel, and Bubba... Mainly Bubba's the prime mover of all this. Guys, if we didn't have Bubba, uh, we couldn't have done this without spending a lot of money. And I I think, yeah, Bubba, every church needs a Bubba, and we've got one. And uh, now Bubba doesn't do it for this. He'll probably be a little mad at me, but I wanted him to know. How much I appreciate, how much I believe the Lord appreciates. Gang, he's done, he and Larry did all of this lighting. We just got that up this week, or they got it up this week. Uh, he did all the rock stuff, uh, and it's just, it's amazing. The only thing we haven't done yet is chairs, and we're thinking about spray painting them. Uh, I don't know, but I, Bubba I, and Larry, I want to say thank you for your labor Bubba, I thank you for your expertise. God's given you a unique ability to do things. And, uh, brother, God bless you. Uh, You can't leave until after I retire. After I retire, I don't care what you do, Bubba, okay? Well, listen, I'm glad you're here. I want you to take your Bible. And I want you to go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We began looking at this before I became ill. And we looked at the first part of Isaiah 6. I want to go back there. Couple things, couple reasons why. Number one, um, most preachers, when they preach from Isaiah 6, stop around verse 7. They, uh, they talk about um, the vision that Isaiah has, and they, that vision where he sees God clearly, maybe for the first time in his life, at least a vision where he sees God, and all of his life has changed. In that vision, when he sees God, he sees himself. And oftentimes what happens is preachers will stop at like verse 7. And they'll talk about salvation, and then they fail to continue the chapter. And I think that's wrong. I think that if you're not careful, that when you get this vision of Isaiah and you stop where he's cleansed, you get the idea that that is all there is to salvation. And that's wrong. You get the idea that salvation is being cleansed from your sin and now all of it's over with so you do one of two things. You hunker down and you wait to the end or you say to yourself, all is good, let's just party hardy, let's have a good time. And that's all wrong. It's a lie. What I want us to see today and the first reason I want to go back to the first part is because there's a lot more to salvation than just being saved from your sin, okay? Now, praise God for that, right? Amen, right? We're glad. But listen to me. Eternal life begins the moment that God is pleased to save you. The moment that the, if you allow me a little liberty, the coal from the altar is placed on your lip, And your iniquity is taken away by the work of a sovereign God. That's not the end, dear people. That's the beginning, okay? Eternal life begins the moment you're saved, and it goes throughout the rest of your life until that moment that Jesus comes and rescues us or the moment that that we die to be with Him. And I think sometimes, preachers, when we stop at that particular place, we paint this idea in the minds of our people, well, I'm saved, that's all there is to it. I just got to hunker down or I got to live it up. And you miss the joy of the relationship. How many of you have been married over uh, 10 years? Bless your heart. Listen, isn't there something about the journey isn't there something about the experience? I know it's not all great. It took me take me forty years to train my wife. I understand all that, but there's something about the process. There's something about the journey that you wouldn't give anything for. And what I want you to know, if you're a blood bought believer, if you are in a relationship with God through His Son Jesus Christ who died on a cross for your sin, gang, you're in an experience that's going to last throughout all eternity, and it began the moment that He was pleased to save you. You're living a life that's exemplary. You're living a life that many people that you know and people you care about don't have a clue. They don't know what it's like when tragedy hits and, and, and pain hits. They don't know what it's like to have the presence of a person in their life, the character of a holy God in their life, to carry them through some of those tragedies. And so I want you guys to know, and that's why I want to complete the chapter, because the chapter is challenging. It's in a tremendous call that God places on Isaiah. And it's relevant to us today today. Because we live in a culture much like Isaiah's culture when people are turning away from God, when people are ridiculing God, when people are laughing at God and people are saying, there's nothing about God that I need for my life. That's what he grew up with. That's what he lived with. That's what we're living with today. And we've got to come to terms with how we're going to deal with that, how important it is for us and why we should deal with that, okay? Now, the second reason I wanted to go back to Isaiah 6 and, in fact, reread and spend a moment in review is this, that it's my prayer that God will invite us into this experience that Isaiah had with God. I told the first service, and I believe this, and I'll share with you, that in these almost 30 years of ministry, I've spent a lot of energy. I've fretted a lot of tears, shed a lot of tears, fretted a lot of worries, trying to capture people who really don't seem to care all that much about the things of God. I'm talking about those who might would come and join for a while and, and for a few weeks or even a few months they would be here and then you, you never see them. And I, I want to tell you, in 30, almost 30 years, I've fretted an awful lot over those people. I've expended a lot of energy going out after them. I've gotten almost on my knees and begged them. I've uh, tried to manipulate them. I tried to coerce them. If I'd have had a chain, I would have chained them and drug them. If I'd had a gun, I'd have made them come to church. But when I study Isaiah 6, and when I see that a man had an encounter with God, and from that encounter with God, he saw himself. He didn't have to be begged to do what was right. He didn't have to be manipulated. He didn't have to have an agenda. What I want you to know, and that's why I pray that God will take us into this closet here, because when you see God, and you see yourself, everything in your life changes everything in your world changes and oh dear people those who have seen god they don't have to be begged to worship they don't have to be manipulated to come to church now i'm not saying there's not going to be moments that they're not going to have bad hair days i understand that and i know there's going to be times of sickness and I know there's times of pressure and all. I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who have some kind of an emotional charge. They hear all this, this stuff that floats around through our pulpits and our TVs and they get all this hype and, and then it lasts for a few weeks, maybe a month, and then it's all gone. And Can I tell you what I think? Here's what me thinks. I don't think they ever have seen God. I don't think they really have an encounter with God. Because when you study the Bible, the people who have experienced God, they repent. They faith Christ. And their whole life changes. And they don't have to be begged or conjoled. They don't have to be manipulated. They can't wait to worship. God. I, I shared with you a few months ago, um, we're all going to get to the scripture. I, I shared with you a few months ago about a young man that grew up in DeWitt with my son. And um, he grew up rough, man. He grew up rough. And and he and his wife had some problems. They came to see me, and through the course of that, I had the honor of, of introducing him to Jesus Christ. And Man, you talk about radical saved. And I, I have to tell you, when he went away, I thought, you know, I know this guy. Um, I know how much he drank. I know what his lifestyle was. He was a big farming family down there. And I want to tell you, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon is when they started popping the suds. And now all day long. I know, it isn't going to last. But I want to tell you, it lasted. It's lasted. He goes to church every Sunday now. He got baptized, you know. He wrote me a letter last night. I started to bring it in and read. He told me I could, but I decided not to do that. But he was just in this letter. He was telling me the difference that Jesus has made in his life. He told me how he used to do this and do that and go here and go there. And he said, now I live and breathe for Sunday." I can't wait to be with brothers and sisters. I can't wait to hear what the preacher's going to Go figure that. Can't wait to hear what the preacher's going to say. I can't wait to worship. God is doing. God's alive in my life. God's doing something in my life. That's a man who has met God. That's a man who's seen God. And all of his world has changed. Would you... Would you read with me Isaiah 6 again and read, let's read 1 through 7. That's kind of a review. I want to take a moment. But why don't we ask God to, to bring us into this experience if we can, spiritually speaking. Why don't we see today if God might invite us into this time that Isaiah had with God? Would you stand in honor of God's Word, verse 1 of Isaiah 6? We'll read the rest of the chapter a little bit later. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings, and two, with two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. One called out to another and said, Holy... Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes Have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. And behold, he said, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity, which means brokenness, crookedness, is taken away. And your sin means to fall short. Your sin is forgiven. Father, help us to somehow transport ourselves in the Spirit back to this moment, that we might somehow get our head around what is happening to Isaiah and why there was such a deep call on his life, a call that brought pain to him, a call that brought ridicule to him, but a call that brought the pleasure of God. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. Be seated. Now, if you remember, last time I mentioned to you that when the good king died, Isaiah began to fear about the sliding of the nation. His fears began to come true, that the nation was sliding into what would ultimately lead to captivity, and so the nation would actually be transported away. Now, gang, as we begin, let me say to you, this section of Scripture, I don't think is prophetic necessarily with regard to the United States. Isaiah saw the vision of God, it changed his life, and he wrote about the nation of Israel being carried away. So I don't want to, I don't want to squeeze that into the United States, but I want you to know this that the principles of God always hold true. When a person sees God, their life changes. When a nation persists in sin, then the outcome of that persistent sin can never be good. So don't leave here today saying that Tom said the United States is Judah and we're going into captivity. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the time in which Isaiah lived and prophesied and preach is sure, sure seems to be very common to what we're seeing in our nation today. And therefore, the call of Isaiah that we're going to close with is a call that I pray we'll understand the importance of for our own life, okay? Now, in review, the first seven verses there, the the first thing let me point out to you is that, that, that Isaiah saw a great divide. A great divide. He, he saw God in his perfect holiness, and he saw himself in his perfect sinfulness. He realized they were incomparable. In fact, he saw it was something worse. It was incompatible. He understood, and, and I hope you understand, that holiness and sinfulness can never exist side by side. They're mutually exclusive. Holiness on the one hand, sinfulness on the other, it cannot exist. cannot cohabit together. They're totally different. Isaiah saw God, saw mightily, magnificently, majestically. He saw this seraphim flying, screaming, holy, holy, holy. And he knew that this divide could never be crossed by man, by man's efforts, man's good efforts, Man's good merits are man's goodness in any way because man is never good enough in any way to approach a thrice holy God. Many people today don't understand it either. They hear about God being the God of love, and He is, of course, but they never hear the flip side of the righteousness and the holiness of God, and they, they think they're okay, and they're steeped in sinful ignorance. They've never seen God. They've just heard that they're okay. So they assume everything will be okay. And how sad to lie. Amazing, isn't it? That the closer we get to God, the more we see the vileness and the blackness of our own sin. But the farther we get away from God, the better we think about ourselves. Let me tell you, gang, man today has a high view of man and a low view of God. But those who have seen God has a high view of God and a low view of themselves. It a, is a great divide, my friend. It's the divide of eternity. It's the divide that separates heaven. And hell. Secondly, he also saw a great mystery. You see, he saw the Lord, and then he saw himself, and he said, whoa, I'm just not in trouble. He said, I am dead, and the whole nation with me is dead. He began to understand that man has not the natural capacity to to understand God. Listen, the finite man can never fully understand the infinite. And so he knew that man doesn't even have the capacity to understand God. He began to realize man doesn't even have the capability to come to God. Do you understand that today? Listen, this, this passage we read doesn't show a man coming to God. It shows a God coming to man. Isaiah didn't reform himself. Isaiah didn't clean up his act. Isaiah said, I'm dead. And it was God that acted. And Isaiah began to realize man doesn't have the capacity. Man doesn't have the capability. He realized man doesn't even have the disposition to come to God. Man has no inclination. Man has no propensity to come to God. Natural man can never be worthy enough to approach God. God must first take the initiative to come to man. Tis a great mystery, this thing called redemption. Beloved, listen, there's a mystery in the atonement here. Man in sin must by necessity have a sin sacrifice. Someone's got to die as a sacrifice for sin. No man would ever die on the altar for his own sin. No man would ever have the inclination or the desire to to get right with God on his own and die so that he might have a right standing with God. That sin sacrifice had to be by someone who was worthy enough, perfect enough, and someone who was willing enough. The man of God's choosing, the sinless, Jesus Christ, the Son. And that's very important. And that's why I say that those who think they're okay but have no desire for the things of God, man who thinks they're okay but never thirsts for righteousness and never hungers for holiness, has never been where Isaiah is here, and he's never seen God, and he's never seen his sin, he's just been filled with lies that floats around all over our nation every single day. And the nation, what, continues to slide into the cesspool. Where are the people of God who have seen God, whose lives have been radically changed because of God? It's a mystery that God furnished his son to be the sacrifice for sin. And gay, I'm gonna tell you. Let me take a sidebar. Sidebar. If that happens to you, and if the realization of that happens to you, and if you can somehow get your head around this holy scene here, that it was God who took the altar from the sin sacrifice and took the initiative to touch his lips and to touch your lips. And by grace are you saved. If that ever happens to you, gang, you're gonna be radically altered. And some of you, and you are, aren't you? Yeah, I know you are. You're radically changed, radically altered. There's something different going on in your life. Why? Because you love God or that you manufacture some kind of design. No, no, it's God that did it for you. It was God that slayed his son. It was God doing for you what you can never do nor desire to do. God did it all. That's why we can come and worship. That's why we can come and teach. That's why we can come and preach. That's why we can come and sing even if we got a terrible voice. Because it's not the voice, we got a song. We got a song of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Like I once was lost. Oh, but now I'm found. Was blind. But now I see. All because of God's amazing sovereign grace in your life. And those, those who don't radically change. The ones I've chased after all of these years, I don't know that they got it. And I don't know why we should be chasing. Because when a man sees God, man desires the things of God. You understand that? All right, now, open your Bible still. Let's... Here's verse 8, here's the question for today. So what? what? What happens? There's our title. What happens when God captures a heart? When God in his sovereignty does what only he can do, what happens? You see, the, the answer to so what determines, makes the difference between those that are saved and those who say they're saved. It's the difference between those who profess salvation and those who possess salvation. Listen to the call that God placed upon this man after his encounter. And then verse 8 is the first time God speaks in this whole thing, okay? After the salvation, verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? By the way, that's a reference to the Trinity. Then I said, here am I, send me. And then God gives them his commission. He said, all right, Isaiah, go. Tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Other ways they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And Isaiah is almost aghast. I can almost, I can almost, he's just had this incredible experience with God. God's commissioned him, and then God gives him this this incredible call to preach when no one's going to listen. And I can almost see him in exasperation say, Lord, verse 11, how long do I got to do this? Until the cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people, the land utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Then verse 13 is positive. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like the terabith or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. And then he says the holy seed is its stump. Like I say, we, we like to stop at the end of verse 7, but we must not because, you see, in verse 9 and 10, we find those words more in the New Testament than any of the writings, other writings of Isaiah. He commissions them to share this message. It's a message of the deadening of the ears, the blinding of the eyes, and the hardening of the hearts. It's not a prosperity gospel preaching, Okay. It's a message that's going to cause the people that he's preaching to to react harshly. Who's going to go? Now, God's not confused. God's not wondering. God knows what he's going to do. He's ordained it. But here's what God is saying. He says, I have something to say to this human race. i got something to say to the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, and because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, he says, I've got something to say to the human race, and I need a spokesman. But not just anybody will do. I need someone who has seen me. And someone after they have seen me have seen themselves. I need someone who would be willing to go even though it may cost him his life. Who will it be? Well, it'll be someone whose guilty conscience has been liberated by grace. Someone who understands the wickedness of their own black heart. Someone who's been dipped in the crimson flood of redemption and forgiveness. Must be someone who understands what their sin is, what their sin does and what they deserve because of their sin, and yet that person has received a pardon and has been adopted into a new family. Oh, no, not just anybody will do. And dear people, while Isaiah's calling and my calling is different than your calling, the working out of it, the hows and the whys, while may be different, The calling is still the same to us. The requisite is always the same. Only those who have seen God are fit to carry the message of truth, especially when the message of truth is a hard message. It's a message of judgment, a message that confronts people in their sin. Isaiah, he says, you go and you preach it, and you preach it, But Isaiah, you're going to be a failure. They're going to react against you. Their ears are going to get duller. Their eyes are going to get darker, and they're going to become deader and deader. That's why Isaiah, how long can I do it? And he says, till the end, because in the end, Isaiah, there is a seed. There's a holy seed because I've made a covenant. Now, dear people, listen to me. Only those of you who have seen God and seen yourself, only those of you who have understood the wickedness and the blackness of your heart and the graciousness of God's salvation can be a spokesman in a dark world like today. Because you've seen the King. Only you can carry the message. And you know something? Every time you hear the Word of God preached, you never come away the same. You always come away different. As weak as man is in his preaching, and believe me, we understand the weakness of preaching. Don and I, Mark, and those of you who have preached, you understand that. And we understand it's the foolishness of a man standing and pretending to open the Holy Word of God to try to give the Holy Writ to people. We understand that when we do our best through the foolishness and the weakness of man, we know that man will never be the same when he hears the Word of God preached. And what I want you to know today is this, that when you hear the Word of God preached, you're never the same. You're either softened, to the truth that's proclaimed, or you become increasingly hardened by the truth that is proclaimed. Our nation doesn't want to hear truth today. But the fact is, no nation has ever wanted to hear truth today in their day. But truth is truth no matter what. And truth must be shared if we're going to be the people of God in this generation. I've lived through a lot of transitions. And dear people, I've never seen the proliferation and the speed of the homosexual agenda like we've seen over the last 6 to 9 to 12 months. Absolutely. It's like a freight train that's filled up with coal, driving at breakneck speed right into hell. And we're part of it. I've never seen the venom by which people react against the murdering of little babies. And they seem to think that it is okay. That's the land in which we live. Who's going to go? Who's going to proclaim that it's wrong? My goodness, we got a president who has opened the floodgate on gay marriage. And every politician gets on board and they talk about man and man's goodness and man's deserving. I want to tell you, man deserves hell. And yet God in His grace saves whom He will. And we must, if we're going to be the people, if we're going to be people like Isaiah who saw the Lord and saw Himself, we must stand. And proclaim this abomination, not in meanness, not in vileness. We're not going to blow up doctors' offices. That's stupid. But stand we must. And in love to those who are caught up in it, with arms around them and tears in our eyes, we tell them the way of God. And we tell them the ultimate judgment. Of those who reject truth. We have to do that. And the church of Jesus Christ has been commissioned to do that. But it's the true church. It is those who have seen God and those who have seen themselves. That's the message of Isaiah. Dear people, that's the message for us today. And it's not an easy message. And those of you that are younger than I, let me tell you, young daddies, young mothers, it's going to get increasingly hotter and increasingly harder to stand for God's truth. And you better determine now, number one, if you've seen God. Number two, you better determine whether you've really seen yourself. And number three, you need to determine, are you willing to say, here am I? send me. And we don't know what happened to Isaiah. We know that he had a hard life. There's a legend that says the old boy, when his time was through, got sawed in half. We don't know that. I, I, Hebrews 11 talks about being sawed in half. Some theologians think he was one of the guys that was, that was laid down flat and a saw was cut across his belly. We don't know that. But I can tell you what he did do. He preached it. He preached God's truth regardless of how They responded, and he preached it even if it meant his life. And if we want to save our nation, then we're going to have to do the same. If you're going to save your kids' lives, if you're going to save your grandchildren's lives, then you better stand up and proclaim, Thus saith the Lord, just like Isaiah did. It's not a popular message. It's not palatable, frankly. You're not going to win friends and influence people. But I'll tell you what you'll die with. You'll die with the pleasure of God. And in the end, that'll be worth it, dear people. Let me tell you something. The gospel of Jesus Christ has always been polemic. The gospel of Jesus Christ has always been challenging, has always been a dividing line in a nation's history. It's always been polemic. We've got to decide. And you have to, I've I've already decided. I'm like Joshua. He was an old man when he said it, so I can say it, I'm an old man. You serve who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're serving God. But I look out of some young places who have young children. And you better decide just like Isaiah, who are you going to serve? Because the time of Isaiah in that nation, while that was given to them, so don't misunderstand, there sure seems to be some commonality today where we are. I'm going to be preaching soon. Actually, we're going to look at, what God says to the church. We're going to look at the Revelation letters in a few weeks. Start that. But I'm also going to be talking to you some things about why did the nation of Israel go into captivity? Do you know what syncretism is? Anybody ever, how, many of you ever, how many of you know what syncretism is? Okay. How many of you don't know? It's okay. I didn't know until I looked it up. Okay. Some of you are scared to raise. I'm not going to call you out. You're not going to have to sing. Syncretism is what destroyed the nation of Israel. Syncretism was not an outright rejection of God. It was the blending of faiths with God. I used to say that that the nation of Israel was carried into captivity because of idolatry and adultery, and that's true. But sometimes when I said it, the idea was that they totally rejected Jehovah God, that they turned 180 degrees away from Jehovah God. That's not accurate. They didn't turn 180 degrees away. They just took some of the other things of life and the other ideas of worship and they blended that to the worship of Jehovah God. That's called syncretism. They blended the worship of Baal and Molech with the worship of Jehovah. And you say, well, we don't do that today. Oh, I beg the difference. Yes, we do. We may not call it Baal. We may not call it Molech. We might even go through the good term of baseball or hunting or whatever it is, you see. And we blend. And they couldn't understand why judgment was coming because they said, We believe in Jehovah. But you can't believe in Jehovah, partly. He's a jealous God. He He shares his glory with no one and nothing. But because they blended all of these different ideas and philosophies, they produced a religion radically and totally different than the worship of Jehovah God. And gang, if there's something that defines the United States of America today, it's syncretism. It's syncretism. We don't reject God. We just make Him common. We just blend Him with a lot of other things in our life. And it led them to captivity. Why would we think? And and they were blown away from it because they thought they were the special nation. Why would we think we're special when we blend and mix into our worship Everything else. Well, what time? That's the time to go home. That's all I got. Let's pray. We're going to have a time of...